Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, the podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between, with your host, Barry Kirby. Hi, and welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Firstly, before we get stuck into the podcast itself, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to those people who've been in touch over uh, with me over the past uh, past couple of weeks since the last episode. Your feedback is really, uh, really crucial to helping me improve what I do and also to deliver stuff that is um, hopefully interesting and useful to people. So if you've got any subjects or topics that you think that I should be looking at or covering that we might find interesting um, and that type of thing, please drop me a line either or through email or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, smoke messages. But there is, I'm, I'm now quite getting quite comfortable in, in sort of the, the production side of things, as you, as you may know, if you've listened right from the beginning, one of the, uh, one of the, one of the main aims of this was a, the, the promotion of human factors and, and human science research in, in a different sphere so there isn't that many uh, human factors based podcasts out there or ergonomist based podcasts and so I thought I thought I would give it a go but also it was about learning how to do new things myself so having never really produced a, a podcast before so there's been a massive learning curve along the way and I've now got to the point I think where I might be able to actually interview somebody so Oh, I'm hoping over the next um, next couple of months, certainly the run up to Christmas, to be interviewing a couple of people. I've got a, f- um, a couple of ideas and a couple of people have emailed me suggesting uh, that they would like to be uh, victims, sorry, interviewees. And and we're going to try and we're going to work on, on how to do that. And I know that there are some of my contemporaries out there um, who've got this nailed already. So I'm going to be learning a lot from them. People like uh, Kirsty Angra, um, who is the traveling ergonomist. And if you haven't listened to her podcast, I suggest you go and do so. She does a lot of really good interviews that way. And uh, Jenny Radcliffe, who does the uh, human factor security around um, social engineering mainly, then um, she does a lot of interviews and she's kind of got it nailed as well. So they're being my inspiration for um, for pushing on. So if you want to like, if you want to be a um, a victim, then um, feel free to get in touch. Or if you've got any ideas of people who would like to be um, like, like like to engage, um, drop me a line. Some of the other topics that are coming up in future recordings will be around cybersecurity, but. We want to build on something that that we did a couple of weeks ago where I was interviewed for a a webinar for the Chad Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors, along with Amanda Amanda Widdeston from TALIS, um, around cybersecurity and really looking at that from the human factors perspective. I want to go and explore that a bit further, particularly around the use of uh, passwords and actual user security, um, our own security, and why the challenge that we have might be quite difficult. But also something that's been in the news quite a lot is around climate change and extinction rebellion, and it's it's got very political and that type of thing. But really, I want to look around the human factors aspects of climate change, and the human factors aspects around getting us as people to change what we do, which is, so it's all around behaviour change, but also enabling behaviour change and what maybe we could do at a very local level as well as a, at a much higher level. So there are a couple of topics that are going to be coming up. Again, if you've got other topics, feel free to get in touch. As for this episode, we're going to be talking about the user. Really, it's they're uh, almost a much maligned 
piece of the development process. They are really crucial to making sure that you develop a, a successful project if you're putting human factors or UX or ergonomics at the at the center or the forefront of, of your project. And for future reference, if you haven't got this already, that's what you should be doing. User-centered design, are, uh, are sort of different ways of putting users at the forefront of what you do. And to get a good user community on board is, will it won't guarantee you a successful project, but it'll certainly take you a long way down the line. But it isn't easy, A, to get access to users, to get access to the right users, but also when you're working with certain clients, they don't often see that they're necessary. I'll give you two examples of one I did was, I was commissioned once to review a product, um, a software product, and looking to develop the user interface. And I was given what one of the stipulations I had was I must have access to their end users. It was a sort of community that they knew their end user really well. And so it, it wasn't particularly a problem in that respect. So I was, I need to talk to them. I would like to interview them. I'd like to get their, their experiences. We got out, we got so far down the line where I got to the point of, right, I've, I've reviewed what you've got now. <laughs> Let me loose with your user community. And we just didn't. It just didn't happen. And basically what they give me was a bunch of emails, a bunch of transcripts of what had been said in the past, which was basically all I got to work with. Now, in the grand scheme of things, something's better than nothing. I was in a position I, I knew a fair, a fair amount around the, this, the way that this product was, was going to be used. But still, we was left in the position that I wasn't entirely sure whether what we'd done was fit for purpose. I thought it was great because, you know, quite frankly, all the all the work I do is 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 brilliant. But then I would say that, and any practitioner who is worth a salt is going to be confident in what they do. But fundamentally, we get our basing from engaging with the user, uh, because the way I've I pick up my own biases and things, I don't necessarily fully understand exactly how it's going to be used without talking to the person who's going to use it. And then I had a a different job, a different contract where development system where the senior stakeholder involved was an ex-user in this community. Um, I'm obviously being slightly vague about what it was because fundamentally it, that doesn't matter. But the, the user I was given was this stakeholder and because they'd done this job about 15 years previous, they were convinced they knew everything and they were designing for them. But they weren't designing for the people who it was actually going to be used for. They were so self-confident. And when I tried to suggest that maybe we need to look and get a, a more rounded view, it just wasn't accepted, it, it wasn't taken. It is just one of these things that, with the best of intentions, quite from from quite quite a lot of the time and potential money saving, and lots of reasons, we can overstep what the user is. Both them jobs that I had talked about ended up in a product that was the best that me and my team could do. But I wouldn't say I was as confident as I would like to have been. But we did what we could do, what what we could do, and as long as you make your client aware of what you think your what the weaknesses are in in the approach that's been taken, then. You can walk away saying, well, I've, I've done everything that I possibly can, which in the grand scheme of things is all you can do. And really, some of this that some of this isn't new. Some of this isn't, um, it won't be a stranger to many practitioners, if um, to the practitioners who are listening. It is one of them things that we have to manage. So what I want to do with this episode is take a whistle-stop tour of the role of the user, how to manage them to a certain extent, with some expectations, and the, the different roles that they can take, and some of the pitfalls to try and avoid. It should be a, I was going to say it should be a relative short podcast, but as anybody who's been in a meeting with me, as when I utter the fateful words of this should be a fairly quick meeting and we're there two hours later, I won't go there. So what is what is a user? What is it we're talking about? Well, 
fundamentally a user is a representative of all the actual people who are expected to use the product or service being delivered. So some examples from my, uh, from my background. When we developed um, armored fighting vehicles, my user group are the group of military personnel who are going to be operating that vehicle in the future. So you're looking at a driver, you're looking at a commander, you're looking at some uh, somebody who'd be in the back, uh, either a navigator or a loader or, or them sort of things. And, and they're people who uh, probably do the job at the moment and can therefore be expected to be developing and themselves into the into that role into the future, or to be teaching that role in the future, and that's uh, it, it, that's a very interesting user group because, as we'll t- we'll talk about in a second, there, there's a whole issues around culture, there's whole issues around how the military user is different to a civilian uh, user, but also the the aspect of really what that end product is going to be used for is is very different as well. The other type of user is just for is the I guess the random consumer on the street, and a really good example of that is the Google Glass. Explorer program. Whenever a new civilian product um, is is hitting the market, it will obviously be um, user tested. I say obviously, <laughs> some of the stuff I use, maybe not. But we we should have some element of user testing. We should have some uh, some engagement. For those who've listened to my podcast in the past, we've talked about uh, the innovation, the diffusion of innovation theory, and how we get different users on board. The Google Glass Explorer program was a really highlighted example of how actually you can make this use this um, getting users on board and actually it for google it, it generated them quite a quite a fair amount of income so they had, a, had their beta program and they sold it everywhere they weren't entirely sure what they're going to use google last for but they marketed it as a bit of a commodity and getting lots of data back from users um such as myself uh, so when we come to use google glass we tried it in all um, different manners of um, environments and we were feeding this data back looking at different apps that they would download everything from seeing twitter to uh, being able to take um, photographs to being able to review video uh, there, there was lots of stuff that you could do but fundamentally it was still a beta program it was still using early adopters to give feedback on a product the google glass um, explorer program i think closed in 2014 I believe, or 2015, and I'd I'd had it for about 12 months, and then people in America had it for a lot longer. But it was it it was a really clever way of of basically they didn't know who their user group was, so they just threw it at everybody, and tried to then define what user groups um, should be coming out of. But fundamentally, when we when we look at our user group for development purposes, we're looking at a, a relatively small or comparatively small defined group that is representative of the um, of the community that, that I'm wanting to engage with. It can be that small defined group, or I'll say relatively, because it can be anybody who's off the street, but it's still you are still only going to get a subset of, of your market at the end. So why do we use these user groups? Firstly, it's about engaging with the user community. They give us key information on what it is that they do and how they currently do it as well as their um, their opinions on what it is that they do. We get a lot of background experience. So from somebody, if we use the example from earlier, if we've got somebody who is already a tank commander, we know that there's a certain amount of training that they've done, there's a certain amount of culture that they've done, things that they expect to do. If it ain't broke, why fix it? If there's stuff that they do that is perfectly well and fits in with what we're doing, then 
then that's that's great. We can learn from that and perhaps empower them more to what they're doing. Or we wanted we want to do a complete step change so we understand why they do what they do. And then we use that narrative to help them take us on a journey about how they can change what they do to make it better. But fundamentally it is about extracting information from them about what they do. But it's not just about what they do, it's the background experience that they've got, which is so vital. And it's it's not just um, about what they've done then, but it's how they've got to that position. So if if they are um, a, tank, a tank commander or a paratrooper or, or something like that, they they don't just join up and be a paratrooper. They go through a whole lot of training uh, to get there. So And that training is built on over time. We can look at the impact that what we would do and what, what this user experience would, would give us to whatever product it is we're developing. And one of the most fascinating bits I find about it is actually the stories that you hear. There's a lot of stories that you get from your user community. And if you engage them in the right way and allow them to express themselves, you get them feeling nice and comfortable. It is actually through a lot of the stories that you elicit some really key bits of information. It, uh, really not only about what they do, but really about how they how they do it and why they do what they do. Because if you can tap into some of that, then that that's like the um, the, the golden ambrosia that uh, that can um, really get them on side with what you're doing. I often say that um, really that the user, the motivated user, is is your key weapon in the arsenal because a you get their opinion. That that's really valuable, uh, but that's really only that that tip of the iceberg because actually if you can then get underneath about what it is they're doing around with their culture and with their behaviour. So if we look at young people using mobile phones and if you're looking at app development then if we we might want to develop an app to do something interesting, but actually if we can get into the nuts and bolts of the cultures that we're playing with, then we can actually get do an app that will not only just deliver the functions that we think are required, but we can do it in such a way that, uh, that really engages the culture that we're talking to. Fundamentally, you might not just want to deliver functions, you might want to actually be helping people develop their own behaviours. So actually the function you think is so you want to deliver, fundamentally getting under the skin of what it is they're trying to achieve, you find something very different. So you should do everything you can to try and not only just engage with a user group, but really understand the richness of what that user group uh, can offer you. That user group might be a group of one, if it's something particularly niche. Or it might be thousands. Thousands would be uh, incredibly difficult to manage in many ways, but it, but it is possible. Talking about managing our users, we need to understand who that user community is, and um, what what does it mean? Because it isn't just everybody. Even if you you're developing a, an app or a, a product that you think is for the for the global market, you're still really never going to appeal to uh, to everybody. I've spoken in a couple of episodes ago around around smart cities and, and how we have that resident as a user. That is probably the broadest user group description I've I've played with. And I'm playing with what we call the target audience description, which I'll come on to in a bit. When I was trying to develop the target audience description, or TAD, for, for, the, uh, for the smart cities community idea, it was... You still, it's still very broad and largely unknown, but you're still got a, a deregulation around community. So geographically, you're limiting what you're doing. It, it, it's it's about really understanding who that user community is, working out what really that key information is that they that you want to get out of them. What is it that they do, and how do they do it? So we talk a bit about users and customers, users, stakeholders. You you generally have this idea of. Um, of who we can play with. So 
I think that personally a customer is not a user. If somebody's coming to ask you to develop stuff, they're probably too close to what they're doing to be considered a user. Um, and stakeholders, we have we can ha you can have stakeholders who are users, um, but if they're but if they're involved in the project, what they're doing will uh, it won't be as effective as what you could be if you're getting fresh users. Which when we talk about roles of users in a, in a second, um, that will hopefully become more apparent. But when we talk about about these users, as a, as we said before, uh, we we have. Certainly, in my world, we talk about civilian users. We talk about military users, and they can be seen as as very different things. We've also got to look at really what user community. What is that user community going to achieve? Are they actual users? Are they going to be people who are going to be using this product tomorrow as soon as it's hot off the shelves? Or really, are they being a deputy for who the anticipated users are. To give that a, a, as an example, I mentioned before about using armored fighting vehicles, chances are the people who are going to, uh, who, who we were using were the people who are going to use it when it com comes off the line. But actually working on another project with maybe 30 year lead times, uh, we, you, you can be developing projects where the user hasn't actually maybe either been born yet or hasn't actually been to school yet, never mind gone into the, gone into the field of, of what it is you're doing. And when we've spoken before about digital natives and digital immigrants, we know that there's uh, there's going to be a lot of change, and there's generational change about how people interact with technology. Um, we've talked about this idea of digital natives, digital immigrants before, but then in in thirty years' time, there's going to be something else of where so maybe we'll have technology that do, that does the brain interface technology that is actually really dependable and really uh, really useful. We're not even thinking in that realm at the moment for um, some safety critical projects that, that I've worked on. That that just wouldn't even be countenanced. You've got to look at, at them users and say, well, actually, are they actual or are they going to be anticipated? And if they're going to be anticipated, what does that mean to the group that you're using for? What does that mean that you're trying to elicit from that group? Because you can't work out how they do things because you're working on something completely new that isn't going to be developed. You can get a lot of information about how they do stuff at the moment, but you've got to be able to put a lot of translation in place. And and take it. It's almost the take things with a pinch of salt approach that you you can look at things and say, well, actually, this is what they're doing, and this is how they're playing with it. If I was to do that in a digital manner, or if I was to improve the way that they do it, or or whatever, so then you can put translation in place. The size of the group will have a massive impact in into what you do with your user group. If your actual user group itself, so the if your whole target audience is very small so maybe there's only a couple of hundred users in the world which is i guess a a very big problem with it with with military projects generally the uh, the more specific a project you work on the fewer or the smaller the your user community is or the user pool is therefore the ability to to pull users out is is harder and harder because they're all doing their day job so you've got to come up with something that's representative if i've got a user group of 10 and i pull one person out is that representative? Well, on one hand, it could be because I've actually got ten percent of my user community. That's that's fantastic, but that's still only one person. And w what we'll talk about a bit later in some of the pitfalls is that you need to strike some sort of balance. You need to strike some sort of idea about what the 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 negative aspects are of, of the user group that you've got. 
So you've got to determine, you've got to justify, largely you've got to justify in your own head and, and to your project, what is representative sample size for me? And where am I going to get the richness of, uh, of, of opinion that I need in order to develop the system or the, the interface or whatever it is that I'm developing? And as long as you're happy with that and you, you, th- you just spend some time thinking it through, you might have, uh, you might understand the full breadth of the audience, or you might understand the demographic of the audience that you're, that you're wanting to play with. As, but you've got to spend that time actually doing the work beforehand to make to make it happen. And you've also got to recognise your own bias. So one of the things that I've been asked quite a lot is, well, can you not just knock stuff up because I myself I, I'm a user, particularly if, if you're doing like say a web app or or something along that, along that sort of line. I've been doing this for a long time, therefore surely I can I can knock this stuff up. On the one hand, yes, that's true. I, I you can, but I come inherent with my own biases, and if particularly if you well, I guess one of the things I really like is when I go into a field that I know nothing about whatsoever, and you can really start from scratch, because understanding your own bias in that perspective is is really quite fun. Uh, because you can just turn around and say, I know nothing. And and it's a really good way of listing information. And it's actually a technique I do use, even if I do know a lot about about the topic. I will go in and, particularly if I don't know the group I'm working with, I'll just turn around and say, I don't know anything, and get them to educate me in what they're doing. Sometimes it's not, not always possible. Fundamentally, yes, you can be a user, but you've got to understand your own bias and the restrictions that brings along with it. And it's up to you to make sure that both you and either your client or your team, uh, the project team that you're working with, really understands the impact of what it is you're doing. Whilst it might be a cost saving to a certain extent, uh, you're not going to get the richness of product at the end of it that you possibly could do. You'll probably get a decent product, but would it be as good as what you could probably do? And would it, would it, would it be as acceptable as what you're really looking for? In the actual project development lifecycle, I see it as the the role of the user really has um, four main elements to it. The first bit is helping you set your requirements. So the the project the project itself will no doubt already have some of its requirements in place. They normally do. It's rare, I think, that I've uh, that I've come to a project that uh, you come to at it fr- come at it from a clean slate and human factors is front and center, particularly the the bigger projects. So you need your users in place to help you set some of the requirements because you've got to understand what's gone before. You've got to have your uh, learning from experience. You've got to um, understand what's been good, what's been bad. Because whilst we are looking to improve systems, there'll, there'll have been a lot of stuff that has been done and done well, maybe even for like for years or tens of years up to this point. And if it's simple and it works, do you really want to change it? There is sometimes sometimes an appetite just to throw digital at stuff because it's cool and it's trendy. Maybe we don't want to do that. And part of our role as human factors practitioners is to step back and say, well, actually, this is either safer, it could be better, or actually the digital is the right way to go. But you get a lot of that from from the experience side of things. The next step is about engaging with the development. So when we're looking at doing the actual development of the product, and so we, whether you're doing that through agile processes, you might be developing through sprints. You, no matter what processes you're using, you need to you need to have users to engage with the development. And the reason is that as you're developing design, you don't just want to come to the end of the uh, design cycle, uh, be that a, a short sprint or a two ten year program, and dump it on them at the end and say, "There you go, done it," and they go, "Oh." I don't like that. Or what does it, you know, you, you need to bring them along for the ride because they can influence 
your design through their knowledge and experience and it's no matter the no matter how much good illustration you do the requirements phase you never truly get everything out until they can actually see stuff that you're developing get a bit hands-on with it and they will then elicit more information for you if you get, come to forks in the road you might have an option A or an option B, and they might be completely um, cost ambiguous. They it doesn't matter which way you go. They can help you take the right take the right fork. Even if there is a cost impact to it, you might be better off spending money earlier on, knowing that you're going to get customer acceptance later on or um, user acceptance later on. But it allows you to justify them sort of decisions. And when you're coming up. Uh, when you're developing things, you might have, uh, well, I would hope you have a task analysis, uh, you might have some target audience description, that them sort of sort of ideas, you might have some user stories, but actually having people there in the room with you, uh, or that uh, you, you maybe do uh, regular user group meetings or things like that, fundamentally they put flesh on the bones of the system that you're developing, the, the whatever it is, they will help you visualize what you're doing better and fundamentally come out with a better product. The next phase is testing. This is the obvious one, I think, where everybody expects users to get involved. And it is true that this is probably where they add a lot of value, but they have to be different users from the ones that have been um, helping you set requirements and engage with development. They don't have to be entirely different. You can have some of the same people involved as long as you recognize that they are they they know the system inside out or they should know the system inside out if they've been working alongside you. They will have a different set of outputs than your brand new shiny people but certainly for usability testing you want to get some brand new shiny people in there uh, to, to look at your stuff fresh and and get that whole experience and then finally is is the acceptance phase and really that is making sure that you've fulfilled your requirements and they these users it's normally where your stakeholder user gets gets in, into play and they can basically turn around and vouch for you that uh, what what you've been asked to do, you've actually delivered. So then four phases, so setting the requirement, engaging with the development, testing and acceptance. So four different user in interface experiences with, with different roles and you can use some of the same users across two or more phases. And like I said, but you, you're testing definitely, you, you have to have some fresh and shiny people, but all the way through you have to be working uh, with these user uh, user representatives but throughout the process when we get when we get with these people they will do two more things for you that um, you wouldn't necessarily get without their involvement when they finish working with you if they've had a good experience and they they feel really bought into the product that you've developed they will go and promote that product regardless of where else you promote it they will go back and tell their mates and tell their work colleagues tell their families that they were involved in developing this radio or this tank or this app or whatever it is. Really, that, that is invaluable because it's that word of mouth um, advertising that is really good for develop for promoting that product in itself. But also from a human factors perspective and a human factors process perspective, they will evangelize about the process. So if they feel like they've, had, they've been really included, really inclusive, really enjoyed what they're doing and really want to promote that, they will then go and tell other people, perhaps other people in the workplace, that they've tried out this new this new approach. It, they really enjoyed it, or they were involved in it. They really enjoyed it, and they felt they like they had a real input. And it was really valuable. They will then go and tell other people, and more and more people will take on um, human factors approaches, and the world will be amazing, or oh, get more amazing anyway. So, what does that mean in terms of us for user management? 
we need to recruit users. You need to look at uh, the multiple pools that are, that are available. Um, as we said before, you've got four main roles there. So you need to be able to recruit the people into into them roles as, as best you can. And, and going back to this idea about you don't know when or when this stuff is going to come into play, what generation are you going to work with? And what generations do you want to play? What, what do you want to play with? But you've also got to make sure that you retain these people as well because sometimes if you come and it can be a bit boring or there's lots and lots of paperwork to do, there's endless questionnaires to fill in, that's not going to be a fulfilling user experience for them in itself. So you've got to make sure that we have consistent engagement across the piece. The look about how you're rewarding the users, that needn't be monetary reward, but you, we see it already where you have, you know, even if you're filling out simple surveys on, on the internet, then you might get points, you, they gamify the situation, or it could be as simple as, here's 20 quid. Um, in some of the environments I work in, there's the you get a lot of mileage out of a, a decent curry night, or um, a few drinks down 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 a pub, or or that type of thing. But fundamentally, they're also going to get the, the 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 softer experiences, that way of feeling fulfilled about and motivated because they felt that they've had influence on something that they're going to use. If they're really proud of it, then um, they're going to get bragging bragging rights. What sort of specific users do I need? Fundamentally, one of the biggest assets you can find is a user champion and that is somebody who is ideally from the user community but is fully bought into what you're doing they can help organize the users and the, and the participants in to, to get the best out of what what it is that you want so you can explain to them what it is that they what you need they can then couch them requests to the right people at the right time in the right language that doesn't cause offense by saying no no we don't want you or, or, or them sort of many pitfalls you can get into from in the military perspective, it normally it's a um, it's either a senior officer or some sort of senior stakeholder champion. To get one of them on board is absolutely key. Then we can look at, uh, at the at the different phases that we talked about. So we you know look around the requirements phase. So for the people for the users that you want to talk about requirements, they've got to have some. They've got to be a stakeholder of some description. They've got to be able to articulate what it is that uh, how they've done their job in the past or how they've done the role in the past what the pros and cons are and be empowered to do so then the design development we want from them assurance that what we're doing is right so they've got to be able, be able to articulate their um, their ideas and that's not necessarily meaning that they have to be articulate but that we've got to be able to empower them and, and enable them to articulate what it is that they, what it is that they need they need reassurance about what it is that we're doing is good for good for their community and also to elicit ideas because obviously we yes we we are being employed to um, to engage with with users and to come up with amazing designs but they're going to be full of ideas then you can actually take them ideas and make something make something out of that but as we said on the assessment side of things they you're looking for a different bunch of people you're st you're looking for for users but who are independent to the rest of the project it's really key that we try and get them them people on board so when we're looking at selecting our users we've got to engage our users consistently and an effective lead all the time so when we look at select selecting the users yes we can look at these things that i've talked about like the target audience description that, that i've already spoken about but we can also look at the at the personas that they all bring us so whilst we might not be able to talk about individual people who've been our user community either for security reasons they might not give you consent to share their personal information but they still want to be involved but they just don't want to want it to be made public or you might be doing a sensitive uh, project the idea of, idea of developing personas who, as a representative caricature almost of your uh, your user community is is really uh, vital and making sure so that your use, users should be could be clustered around these these personas. 
But in reality, depending on what you're doing, sometimes you just have to take what you're given. And really, it's about uh, that's about where your experience of professionalism comes in, in understanding what the limitations are of the audience that you've got, the user community that you've got, and and cracking on doing the job, but understanding and and being open and honest about it. That's uh, about saying, well, you've got either a, a limited assurance or you've got maybe a limited confidence in, in what you've developed because of a lack of user engagement. When we get the users on board, there's three real three things that you've got to really make sure you do. And they are, you've got to onboard them, you've got to execute the activities and you've got to offboard them. So onboarding is about taking people into the project. So if they're just in it for a short time or a long time, it doesn't matter. You've got to train them and brief them. On, on what the scope of the work is, what the project is about, link it to what they've done in the past and why they're actually on board and why they're valued, and also set out clear expectations about what it is that you're expecting from them, what they can expect of you, and allow any of that sort of discussion. When we come to do the actual activities, so be them actually the design and manufacture or the testing side of things, we've got to remember that we are the experts in what we do, they are the experts in what they do. They're not the experts in what we do. And so we need to be able to articulate to them exactly what it is that, that we want out of them at the time. But we also need to respect the fact that they know what they like and they know what is good from their perspective and what is bad. And so we make sure that no matter what opinions they pass forward, that we note them down and give it the uh, the respect it deserves. We make sure that if they don't understand what is that is expected of an, that at any given point, that we support them in that. And and they've got outside issues of, of their own, and we've got to be um, cognizant and manage that as well. At the end of the at the end of the pro- project, or at the end of their involvement, because it might just be a short piece, we've got to make sure we offboard them in the right way. So we allow them to give us feedback about about their experience. We, we give them feedback about their experience, about the, our experience of them. The vast majority of the time, you want them going away feeling really positive about your engagement because going back to this idea that they can evangelize uh, to everybody else about what about the experience they've had and about and about the approach that we was used. So really it's all about making their experience meaningful. Fundamentally, there are a whole lot of user engagement techniques that, that we can use. So everything from face-to-face discussions, you've got workshops, developing storyboards is a fantastic way of bringing out people's background into into a particular user group. We've already talked about developing personas. Questionnaires um, a very strongly used tool, particularly for remote situations. Or you maybe you're going out broader, um, like be like Google, what the Google Glass Explorer program did. You know, I, I didn't meet anybody from Google when I was doing my usage, but we, we fed back what we were doing. The interviews, so semi-structured interviews, I tend not to go to uh, unstructured interviews. and I, I don't find them as useful as, as they could be. I, 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 you should always have anchors in, 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 in an interview, so you, you can structure it around what you're doing. But what we fundamentally, what, what we've got to remember is we've got to have a really good balance of objectives, things that you can measure, and subjective, because all the way through this process, people are going to come at you with curveballs or ideas that you just haven't thought of and you can't easily fit into a box, but they might be amazing. We've got to be able to account for that and, and allow that. Fundamentally as well, we've you've got two of the main phases. You've got, you're designing what you're doing to fulfill the requirements. But you're also validating later on that what you've done has actually hit hit the high spots and 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 it's hit the aims. You're after information and input, but you're also after stuff that you can write down and put ticks in boxes and and high scores. I've made a lot of this sound like this is all actually dead easy, and you know you just, you just chuck some people in there and, and and we can crack on. But 
it's not necessarily all roses because users can be an elusive beast um you might not get what you need and you might have to make do as i've spoken about before sometimes you just have to crack on with either little or no input or not the level of input you wanted you might get people who've come along because actually they they were the people who were free on that wednesday afternoon that you needed them rather than the ultra the the, the deep specialists that you wanted in a particular topic but that's all you know so sometimes you just have to suck it up but also users can be contrary they can change their minds they can have arguments with each other um you can there's a there's an adage that in certain user groups and i won't name them uh, but if you have two of them in a room you'll get about five opinions and and i've seen that on on more than one occasion you can have groups that influence each other you can have, uh, particularly in a military context, I've, I've seen it, or in fact, in, in senior management groups where, where we've worked, that everybody can have lots of opinions until the most senior person in the room says, well, I think this, and then suddenly everybody else has the same opinion because they're being influenced. They can also be terribly biased, biased around um, stuff that they um, haven't enjoyed or stuff that they might want to see other people suffer for. So when we, you know, the, the, there's the old adage of, well, I did, I did that, it didn't, didn't do me any harm. That does filter through into product development. And it's up to us as practitioners to recognise that. Because it might be quite simply unconscious bias. And a lot of it is, is down to us to encourage um, positive thinking. Sometimes users just may simply not agree. They might not like what you're doing. They might not like what you've been asked to do. And they they can be quite strong in, in their opinions. We've also got, got issues around the customer themselves. Because the customer may think that they themselves are, are the user. And I've certainly had that on more than one occasion where you've had um, people who are either project managers or whatever think that on, on how you use something is valid. Uh, in one respect, it, it can be, but actually it's, a, it's more than likely not because then they wouldn't be an end user. And so they'll, all they'll be seeing is a snapshot of what it is that you're doing and not really putting things into context. The defence, though, certainly the British defence used to have a concept of customer one and customer two. Customer one was the person who paid for it. Customer two was the person who used it. That might be the other way around, but you you get the idea. And this was actually quite a, a very good concept because you really had the idea of one you've got to please in terms of numbers and, and figures. The other one you've got to you've got to please in terms of usability. And never the two shall meet, which from a user perspective was cool. However, when you were then having to do trade-offs. Um, that's when it sort of hit issues because the the customer too, um, who's into usability, never really had sight of the numbers and, and and really never got engaged. One of the biggest issues we can hit is the expert user. So the users who have been around with the project for a long time or uh, have been using whatever it is that you're developing to replace for a long time. And they forget what it's like to be a new user coming in, which is why when we talk about the um, the the users who've been involved with your design development phase, why you need different users to come in and test it, because those who've been involved in design and development generally will be will become expert users one way or another. And then finally, you've got the users who think they're experts, the people who've who've come along um, or have got in got involved in the project one way or another. They think they're experts in in what they're doing, but actually maybe they don't have the sufficient skill or the sufficient knowledge to to do what it is you're doing. And again, that's where it's up to us as practitioners to be able to identify those people and deal with them in in an appropriate way. Ninety nine percent of the time, isn't their fault that they're that they're not in the right place that they should be. But it is up to us to be able to recognise and um, take the appropriate level of understanding for the project about the opinions that you're getting. So. 
that was a quick canter through what I consider the importance of a user is. Uh, fundamentally, it's about working out what your user pool is. Really try and get your user champion. Determine what the art of the possible is in terms of your user community, but actually refine it to be practicable. Do all of that thinking up front. Don't just try and fall, don't fall into a, a user pool. Try and get what it is that you uh, want to want to get out of it. Otherwise, you just end up wasting a lot of your time and a lot, and a lot of the client's time. So, thank you very much for um, bearing with me and, li- and keep keeping on listening. Do you get in touch with your thoughts? Do you um, agree or violently disagree with anything I've said tonight? Or tell me about some of your experiences of, of uh, user engagement and user, user participation. Perhaps you've been a user on, on a project. Maybe you've been a user on one of my projects and maybe have your views on, on the, way that we, uh, the, way, the way that we worked. Get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, email. It's, um, I'd be really, really um, keen to hear your thoughts. Do whatever uh, app you use to uh, listen to to, uh, to the podcast, either through Apple or um, or whatever. Please do leave a, a review if you can. This helps other other people find uh, the podcast, and and then they can then tell their friends, and it can take over the world. And but as I said right at the top, any ideas for topics or collaborations are very welcome. Um, do feel free to get in touch. But as for now, I shall leave you to get on with whatever it is that you that you were doing and i shall see you in a couple of weeks thank you for listening to 1202 the human factors podcast please do get in touch with your thoughts questions and comments you can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on twitter at b-a-z underscore k See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.